In recent decades, the Puritans have experienced something of a renaissance among evangelicals. Men like John Owen, John Bunyan, Richard Baxter, and Thomas Goodwin have been reintroduced to large numbers of Christians, stimulating greater appreciation for church history and deeper reflection on neglected theological insights. And yet, relatively little attention has been paid to Puritan women. People like Agnes Beaumont, Lucy Hutchinson, Mary Rich, and Anne Bradstreet. In our interview today, I'm talking with Jenny Lynn DeClerc about why it's worth exploring the lives and theological reflections of some of these women and what they can teach us about our faith today. Jenny Lynn holds a PhD from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where she specialized in Puritan spirituality. She currently serves as an editor at Crossway and is the author of Five Puritan Women, Portraits in Faith and Love, published by Crossway. Let's get started. Jenny Lynn, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. So today we're going to talk about the Puritans and Puritan women in particular. Um, but before we, we jump into women and their unique roles that they've had in the history of the church, uh, I wanted to talk more generally about the Puritans as a, a movement or a group of people in church history. And I, probably no one has done more to help to revitalize the reputation of the Puritans and advocate for their importance in the life of the church in the, in the recent years than J.I. Packer, who mm-hmm. obviously passed away a few years back. But even with that said, outside of a certain conservative, reformed circle that we tend to live in and, and operate in, I would say the Puritans still get a pretty bad rap, generally speaking. And so I wonder if you could just speak to what are some of the most prevalent, unfair assumptions or misconceptions that you see people make about the Puritans today? Yeah, it's a good question. I kind of wish we were beyond this question, but the truth is, I mean, we really are in like academia. If you meet any scholar, you know, of the 17th century, they know that the stereotypes are just not accurate. So that's great. But on a popular level and even in universities around people who maybe aren't in history or don't Mm -hmm. know about the 17th century, these uh, are still really common. So um, yeah, dear Dr. Packer started a great trend of defending them and uh, just making them more real to us. And I'm glad that me and a lot of other people in a small way can continue doing that. So I'm not really sure I would list more than one thing. I would probably just say a general vibe of they were killjoys and they didn't want anybody to have any fun. They were very (laughs) intense, too intense to a fault. They were obsessed with conforming your outward behavior to Mm. certain religious rules, that that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure what the there might be a great one big umbrella term, but in my mind, those are all related. Yeah. Just sort of these really negative people that bring down a good vibe. Um, So, yeah, unfortunately, that is really still common. Um, When I started studying the Puritans, I sort of thought that, oh, maybe this was just an old perspective that was kind of like perpetuated in their time and then kind of in some later scholarship that wasn't favorable to them. But I'm surprised by the weird things that people will ask me. (laughs) I once had someone ask me like out of the blue, just off the top of their head after I had said, yeah, I'm writing my dissertation on John Owen. 
And the first thing that they asked me was, did I know of any stories of like children raised by Puritans who basically like felt abused and then like revolted against their upbringing? And I was wow. like, I don't know where that <laughs> from. And I'm not sure how you came up with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people are very diverse in history. And so there's all sorts of stories, good and bad, but it's definitely wrong to assume that somehow the Puritans were bad people, which is essentially what I think people believe, which is really sad. Yeah. Well, that goes to just the broader way that we often think of history. We sort of, we think in terms of movements and groups, and we can often lose the individual stories and the nuance of people. We don't treat them like real people. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, what other kinds of responses have you gotten from your fellow church church members as you've shared, oh yeah, I've got an interest in Puritanism, or I'm writing my dissertation, or I'm writing a book now on the Puritans. What are the, some of the kinds of reactions that you get? I guess it would be sort of diverse depending on who I'm talking to. I mean, some some people who have, you know, read Dr. Packer actually have heard of the Puritans and probably have a positive view, even if they've never read them. So um, sometimes you do get a good response, which is nice. <laughs> I think probably the most common response is people have no idea who they are or what you're <laughs> right. talking about. And then probably the second most common is, ooh, why would you want to get into those guys? They sound weird and yeah. horrible. Um, yeah. And then, you know, maybe the least common response is people being interested and happy and thinking that is cool. Mm. It's it's so great, though, that you're part of this, uh, yeah, a revival, uh, so to speak, of helping the church today to appreciate the Puritans for what they what they actually did and said and maybe get away from some of the caricatures. How, how did you first get into the Puritans as a topic? I know you have always had a love for history and for reading, but what would you say was the main doorway into reading the Puritans? Yeah, well, I had, um, when I first became a Christian, I want to say maybe like, well, maybe not when I first became a Christian. When I first went to college, I discovered J.I. Packer, and I hadn't, I hadn't read a lot. I probably read like one Packer book. Um, and so I had kind of maybe heard of them. And then when I got married uh, to my husband, I was, I was thinking through a lot of like Christian life questions. And he said to me, oh, I think John Owen wrote like the famous book about that. Have you ever heard about him? And I was like, I have no idea who that is. Uh, so I looked it up and got an Owen book. And then, yeah, the rest was history. I was just so into mm. it. And I just kept finding more and more. And yeah, Owen was definitely the gateway drug. Maybe that's a bad... <laughs> Can I say that on this podcast? Is that a bad metaphor? <laughs> I'm not sure what John Owen would think of that. So sometime after discovering the Puritans generally through John Owen, you began to discover the writings of various Puritan women, and you experienced a whole new, as you call it, spiritual awakening. So I wonder if you could walk us through how that happened. Well, the first thing that got me going on Puritan women was actually my previous boss. Uh, I was working at Regent College with their rare book collection, which was actually a bunch of Dr. Packer's books. Wow. And my uh, supervisor, shout out to Dr. Cindy Alders at Regent. She's great. Look her up. She came into my office and said, why don't you like do a display or some research thing about Puritan women? And in the moment, I was like, horribly embarrassed embarrassed because I was like I don't even know who they are like in my brain I didn't yeah. say that out loud but I was thinking oh no I have no idea where to start with this and how also how have I never 
thought to ask that question. Well, so what, um, what, what is the answer to that question? Like, how is it that at that point you've already been professionally studying the Puritans yeah. to some extent? Why hadn't they crossed your mind as a category? Well, I think, I mean, I've been very blessed in the schools that I've been a part of and all of my professors. I mean, they're some of my favorite, most wonderful people. They have been so supportive in my life and have really developed me as a person. But I think for whatever reason, women's writings just tend to still fall through the cracks. I don't know. I think sometimes it's becoming more common to talk about women in church history, but often it's, oh, so-and-so's wife. And then you just like mention them. And then it's kind of just, you know, nobody like thinks to follow that up with any questions or anything. And so I guess I just hadn't been in the groove, not to the fault of my professors or the schools I went to, or maybe even to myself. I think it's just the general vibe of people don't think when you're doing research, you're kind of drawn to the most popular people, the most famous, the hardest most intense words like oh and and so you kind of forget about like oh maybe there's some other little thing that no one has mm. really done a lot of work on that I could look into and so I think that it's probably just that that uh yeah. they sort of just slip through the cracks a little bit but same with all women history <laughs> yeah uh, so what kind of documentation is available now because that's probably one of the could be one of the hardest things right about Puritan women in particular is just probably just less historical material available at this point is that true yeah for sure I think I mean we could say that about any individual or any group of people in history depending on like what was preserved what could they have written or like recorded in the first place based on their background and like education and then like did anybody keep the document like all sorts of questions um but I was very happily surprised to find that there were a bunch of scholarly editions of like primary sources and for some Puritan women like Anne Bradstreet who's very famous like in the literature field um in terms of like you know American history and things like that there's actually a lot of you know just little articles secondary sources on super super neat things that people <laughs> are trying to delve into in, in terms of her poetry um so, yeah, I was I got lucky and all of the um, women that I came across and the sources that I needed were there were like modern critical editions, all except for one. And then, you know, there were some like old reprints that you can find out of copyright, like online or whatever yeah. for free. Yeah. So I was very blessed by those wonderful scholars who and the publishers who have made that happen. Um, what were some of the primary sources that are available for these Puritan women? Are there letters and what kinds of documents are there? All sorts of different things. I actually tried to, in my book, give like a little, try to give a representation of sort of different genres. So we've got Brilliana Harley's letters and Anne Bradstreet's poems and Lucy Hutchinson's theological treatise and Agnes Beaumont's personal narrative and who am I forgetting? Oh, Mary Rich's meditations that she wrote and a diary that she kept. Um, so there's all sorts of different things, but definitely for women, the more common types of writing that they did were like letters and diaries and that sort of thing rather than like formal academic stuff because they obviously couldn't go to university so mm. <laughs> that wasn't a very common thing for them to do 
what what was life like for a Puritan woman? What things were open to them? What things maybe weren't open to them compared to what it's like today? It's sort of a complex question. I'm glad that you asked it. I mean, obviously, women did not have a lot of the same rights that they do today. And we shouldn't gloss over that. If you do, then you're going to totally misunderstand <laughs> what, you know, what they're saying in their writings and what they're doing in their lives. You know, they couldn't go to university and technically couldn't, obviously couldn't vote. That didn't come till a lot later and couldn't own proper property. But then there were ways that they could have the property passed to them from their husbands or like, you know, Lucy Hutchinson wasn't able to go to university. But when her parents saw that she was just like a really nerdy child and loved reading and was like smarter than her brothers and stuff, they hired, uh, you know, a bunch of tutors to mm. come into the home. And so she ended up becoming a very well-read and genius person, you know, even though she didn't have the same opportunities as her brothers did. But then, yeah, there's also the whole other question of most of the people in this book are relatively wealthy. Agnes Beaumont is not on that spectrum, but she's still not like destitute. So mm. you kind of also have to take that into consideration, like what taken, you know, think about all sorts of different aspects of their background and what opportunities did they have. And that's not just a gendered thing. Like obviously they were, there were poor men as well. So yeah. and they like weren't getting educated or writing anything. So, yeah. yeah, it's 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 so helpful to keep that context in mind because it does help to shape how we would understand what they're writing, who's able to write and, and, and who's not even able to write uh, and, and have have their documents preserved like all of these women that you explore did. You say that in the book that one other reason why perhaps uh, Puritan women in particular are often neglected historically is just that, quote, they do not always say what modern historians want them to say. And I found that really interesting, and I was hoping you could explain more of what you meant by that. Yeah, so when I started delving into all of the secondary sources, everything that I could find about women in the 17th century and these particular women, I started to see sort of a trend and also, you know, talking to people and lecturing at places and just seeing their reactions to things. Sort of started seeing a trend of, like making how do, how do I say this making excuses kind of for what they're saying like they were saying this because they were oppressed by their religion or by this these men in their life or something like that and it just felt like it wasn't really doing justice to to their actual opinions which I think we can say that they genuinely wrote what they believed about because there were also like atheist women who wrote about what they believed about and mm. you know I hope that nobody you know in trying to read those women would now force them to like come Christians quote unquote or something like that so yeah it just kind of felt like they were being either there what they wrote was being slightly changed like the interpretation was a little bit off or they were just being neglected compared to some other 17th century women who are way more famous like Margaret Cavendish and women who were kind of like into science and non-religious and, you know, fit into our, you know, Western society values today or some of them. Mm. And so, 
Yeah, that's what I meant by that was that they, because they weren't on about the same topics and beliefs that maybe some of the people who are doing the great work of trying to like uncover these writings and get them out there again, wanted them to say that they're either being changed or just neglected compared mm. to some other women. So yeah, there was kind of that side of it. And then also the flip side of, you know, really conservative people making them out to be these like paragons of <laughs> conservative theology or even politics. And like, again, just on the other end of the spectrum, forcing their own beliefs onto this person who was in a totally different time and place and not working with the same concepts um, mm. as we are today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's dig into just one of the stories that you talk about in your book, the story of Lucy Hutchinson, and uh, maybe one of the best little anecdotes that I think gives some insight into her life uh, that I found pretty fun and interesting was the story of how she met her husband, John. I wonder if you could just share a little bit about what that initial meeting was like and maybe what that reveals about uh, Lucy's character and her, her interests. Yeah, I love that part of the story, too. I found it so funny. Like, when I first read it, I was just really laughing. I was like, this is the perfect meet-cute. Someone's got to make this into a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, Lucy was really nerdy from a young age. She loved reading. She she writes this in sort of like a very small autobiographical excerpt that was attached to her, basically kind of like a history of the Civil War, but also a biography of her husband. And... In that, she says, like, I just liked reading. I didn't want to, like, hang out with the other kids. I didn't want to do all the, like, quote-unquote women things I was supposed to do, like sewing and that sort of stuff just really bored her. Down on sewing. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, her uh, father hired a bunch of tutors to teach her at home, and she was just really supported in her sort of intellectual endeavors and became this really smart woman. And one day when her, like, later husband, though not at the time, came over to their house, Lucy's sister was showing them around and he said, whose Latin books are these? <laughs> and then her sister said, oh, those are my sisters. <laughs> and he said, oh, I'd really like to meet her. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it, it actually is sort of like an interesting little, you know, a good representation of their relationship overall. They were both intellectuals who loved talking about ideas and their whole lives kind of revolved around that and they were very passionate about their beliefs. And yeah, they really had that in common and that's what led to them becoming friends, basically. Like Lucy said, she didn't really like necessarily hanging out with people on the time, but he was a good person to talk to. <laughs> Maybe compared to some of the less smart people. Yeah, <laughs> in her life. Well, and so, yeah, you mentioned that they eventually get married. And in the book, you do give a little glimpse into what their day-to-day -day life was like, at least in those early years of marriage. You say they spent their days studying scripture, debating theological questions with local pastors, listening to sermons, and catechizing their children. What else do we know about what their day-to-day -day life was like in those early years? Oh, man, it's a good question. We it depends on if we're talking like. Before, during or after the English Civil Wars, because that obviously like greatly affected everyone's life, even if 
a person wasn't directly involved in stuff that was happening, like Mary Rich, who was a little bit, you know, on the outside and didn't have super strong political convictions, but the Hutchinsons did. Yeah, I mean, during the Civil War, things were, like, chaotic, but at the same time, they were, like, kind of in it together as a family. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what to compare it to in terms of their daily lives. I mean, yeah. like, imagine going through a war. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so maybe maybe speak to that. So I know that Lucy and John both lived during the English Civil War and that that had a pretty big impact on their family. I wonder if you could just share a little bit about how each of them was involved in the war and what that looked like and then the long term impact that the war had on them. Yeah. So Lucy's husband, John, was a colonel, so he had an official role and she was also a nurse at the time, both for the parliamentarian army. So she kind of had less of direct involvement, but she really did have strong convictions just like him about politics and they were hardcore parliamentarian. So what does that mean? Help us understand just the quickly the the summary of the different sides in the war and kind of what was going on there. So basically what was happening was in England, uh, some people were getting basically just really dissatisfied with the monarchy. They were not happy with the way things were panning out. And so Oliver Cromwell, the infamous (laughs) Oliver Cromwell, formed an army and civil war ensued, basically. And so those were the parliamentarians. On the opposite side were the royalists, who were the supporters of the king. And then they basically were duking it out. (laughs) Parliamentarians trying to basically overthrew the monarchy and started a new system of government, which we, they were partly uh, successful in. As we know, King Charles I was executed, and then there was a period of time called the Interregnum uh, where there was no king, but it ended up not working out for them. <laughs> and yeah. then Charles I's son, Charles II, ended up taking the throne and the restoration started. So at that time, things kind of, as you can probably guess like power structures were being flipped so mm. first it was like the king and his people that were in charge then the you know the parliamentarians and their people and then the king again and so there was backlash against everyone who was involved in the parliamentarian cause so that included Lucy and John and John was imprisoned and unfortunately died there just because of the he got sick and it wasn't great conditions. Mm. So, yeah. And then what, what kind of impact did that have on Lucy and, and their family? Yeah. So it was really devastating. I think while he was in prison, she was in a way trying to, to get him out, trying to convince him to do things that would get himself out, even if it was going back on uh, his beliefs. And so I think there was a real hope that he was going to get out and then he didn't. And so it was really horrible. Obviously, there are limitations on what women can do at this time. And so and like they don't have education. So what are they? You know, there's also limits in that sense. And so what ended up happening was Lucy had to basically sell off their estates and try to find employment for her kids and try to figure out where to live and all sorts of stuff and so she kind of went from even even when they were in the war which was a horrible time I think there was this sense of they were together and they were a family and they were gonna get through it together kind of thing and then when he died it 
was like, great, now I have to do this all by myself. I have these kids I have to take care of and I don't really have the means of doing that. Um, and so she, we don't, we actually don't know ex what happened to her. Like the last record we have is obviously you, you, you can't just pick and choose. I wonder what was happening in this year of her yeah. life. You have to go based on like, what is the, what are the available documents and the information? And so towards the end of her life, we, it kind of seems like she was traveling around the London area, maybe just staying with friends. We know that she was going to sermons on Sundays. So it seems like she sort of ended up living this kind of like nomadic lifestyle, mm. um, which was, yeah, really, really difficult and horrible, as you can imagine, kind of losing your livelihood. Thankfully, she still had her kids, which was good. Yeah. But at the time, yeah, if a, if a woman or a family lost the father, right, they, they really were economically and socially pretty exposed. Is that right? Yeah. Lucy had grown up with wealth and with John, she was also, they were doing well. And so at that point, you know, you usually have like a group of friends, like there's some kind of community where so-and-so takes in this widow or whoever takes in someone's uncle or whatever it is, someone is sick and they go to live with a family member or friend so that's that is definitely like a safety net she wasn't destitute but yeah very limited in terms of you know it's not just like get a job and now all your family comes to live with you and it's really easy and they visit all the time and you know they just fly out and <laughs> yeah yeah um obviously that would still be horrible today but you have more options for what's going on yeah yeah uh, so then after her husband's death uh, lucy then went on to to write something pretty remarkable, and, and it was for the sake of her daughter, Barbara. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what that was. Yeah, so she actually wrote a lot of different types of books. I just focus on this one because, this particular book, because um, it's the most immediately relevant for the Christian life, which I think is what the average Christian person is most interested in rather than like 17th century politics and stuff like that. But she did write other things, which was yeah. cool. She was definitely... A writer in her own right um but yeah she wrote what we believe today is the only theological treatise that we have from a woman in the 17th century so basically like a more systematic theological document as compared to something like a letter or a poem or a diary which has theological ideas in it you know if it's written by a christian but isn't fleshed out and is not focusing on theology, dogmatic theology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, what exactly was she trying to accomplish in this and what was the purpose of writing it? Yeah. So she says in a little letter that's prefixed to the beginning of the book that um, this is for her daughter, Barbara, her oldest daughter, Barbara, who we think was recent. It seems like from the context of what she's writing, Barbara had just got married and now she was going off to live with her husband and she's kind of not under her mother's house anymore and under her rules, <laughs> under her Christian way of living. And she's wanting to basically say to Barbara how important it is to stick close to the church and its faith and how important it is to love other Christians, no matter what denomination they're in, and love all people whether they're religious or not. So yeah, it's a pretty amazing, amazing 
book because it doesn't, like I said earlier, it does, there isn't like another example that we have from the 17th century. It almost at the beginning when she's writing this letter to Barbara, it almost kind of looks like a mother's advice book, which was a common genre at the time and would often be written because the mother is like basically might be preparing to die in childbirth and she wants to like pass on her belief or give a little something for her kids so that's kind of the way that lucy is writing this we're not sure though if she actually if she was maybe just using that language to then jump into a different thing that wasn't common or if she actually did think maybe she was dying we don't know (laughs) yeah uh so she it's kind of like a last will and testament vibe in in the beginning letter that she writes to barbara but then it has this like big theology book (laughs) so yeah it's really cool and it's pretty hardcore i forced my husband to read it last year when i was writing the book because i was like you just have to read this it's so cool and i'm annoyed with you if you don't read this (laughs) (laughs) i love lucy so much and he was totally in love with it like within the first page he was like this is the coolest thing i've ever read because um Yeah, she obviously, you know, like any theologian does, borrows from a lot of other sources. You know, you're building on other people. But she's also very innovative and just has a real skill for writing. And so when you're reading it, you're realizing, wow, this is really powerful. Like it's high thought and high scholarship and at the same time, just beautifully written Mm. and really interesting precise yeah yeah what are some of the the theological topics that she covers is it kind of designed to be a pretty comprehensive systematic theology or is she more focused than that it is a systematic i mean not in the sense that if you like pulled a systematic book off the shelf today it would be exactly the same but similar to the idea of like it's not as big as calvin's institute but it's kind of the old way of doing systematics you know obviously things get more and more and more developed over time and so our systematic theology get even more you know detailed uh, and longer and longer yeah she starts with like knowledge of god and knowledge of self which is basically exactly where calvin starts it exactly and we know she did read the it's too so that's probably where she got her inspo and uh yeah and then she you know talks about creation and sin and salvation it's just like all of the basic topics that you would pretty much expect and then she by the end of it she starts getting more into like christian life stuff like your relationship with god and she alludes to a second book that is supposed to be about all about ecclesiology um but that was either lost or she maybe she never wrote it we don't have that It kind of stops there, but there is actually still quite a bit about um, the church in the Christian life section at the end. So you still get a little bit of that in there. Yeah. So you said that some of the work that she did in this book was innovative and and really maybe even creative. Are there any things that, you know, any sections or bits of theology that she does that that stood out to you? And when you read them, you were kind of like, wow, that's a really fascinating insight that maybe I haven't heard from anyone else. Oh boy, all sorts of stuff. I mean, when my husband read the beginning of the book, he was like amazed by her definition of God, basically, and and her description of God's nature. That stuff is really technical, though, so maybe I'll talk about more of a fun thing. Hmm. (laughs) I was surprised when I got to one of the sections that she's sort of talking about 
our relationship to God and how important it is to be grateful to God. And then in this one area, she sort of goes on a little side rant about how she thinks that one of the reasons Christians are not grateful enough to God for all the things they have in their life is because basically because they don't love other people enough and they don't realize and see, wow, God has blessed every single human being on earth with so many diverse things that they need and they're coming to all of us no matter who we are, you know, throughout history and we all get to benefit from them. So the different seasons and all the creatures and different specific ways God loves all of us. Hmm. Well, let's take a step back, Jenny Lynn, and I wonder if you could just answer a simple question. Why, why do you think it is important for the church to read the stories, to know the stories of Puritan women in particular? What are we missing out on if we continue to neglect their stories? That's a great question. I think maybe I'll answer it from a few different angles. So I think from like a historical perspective, if we are only talking about like the most famous people, which are usually the men, then we sort of have this unrealistic view of what society was like, like where they're just a bunch of men, like where, where did they come from? <laughs> um, so just from in terms of like trying to understand history better, yeah, the right. more people you know of, young people, old people, men, women, educated, not educated, whatever, people with different beliefs, the better you actually understand like the world at that or, you know, just that particular place in the world at that time. I think from a theology perspective, you know, the, like I said earlier, the Puritans were known for their work on the Christian life and applying the Bible to every aspect of life. But often when you read the male Puritans, you know, like the famous ones and the pastors, they are getting into like intense ideas. They're talking about all the ideas, not not necessarily in a, a non-practical way. Obviously, that's what they were good at. But they're kind of giving like the formal, the official, like this is the Puritan view of this, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or this is the reformed view, as they would say it. They obviously wouldn't say the Puritan view themselves. But I think what we can benefit from when we read the women is that you actually see it playing out in real life, which is way messier <laughs> than necessarily like the official statement of what we believe about this. So that's kind of what I found when I started studying the Puritan women was not all of them are making like explicit statement all the time about like, this is what I believe and therefore I did this. And it's this like perfect formula. It's just stuff is happening in their life and they're like going along with it as a Puritan. You know mm, what I mean? Yeah. And they're writing in sort of a more raw, unfiltered way. So there's a complicated way of understanding like women and publishing at this time. So I maybe won't dive into that, but we can say that, you know, obviously someone like John Owen, he was like intentionally publishing for academia he was intentionally preaching for the church whereas sometimes these women were just like writing down their daily experiences and thoughts and so i think that kind of gives a different side to it but at a super important side because if we're saying that the main thing the puritans were good at was applying the bible to life now we want to see that 
happening in real time, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Maybe one more uh, one more kind of nuanced version of that question. I wonder if you could speak mm. to the men listening in particular right now. Uh, why should they in particular, why should we as men not neglect the stories of uh, not just Puritan women, but women from church history even more generally than that? Yeah, well, I think in a general sense, anyone can learn about anyone, obviously. You never know when you read someone's story what's going to ring true to you or somehow be related to something in your life. And so I think for all of us, it can be this exercise of like self-reflection and practicing compassion for other people and even for ourselves. But I think it's it's important for guys to also read about women just to, again, remember that there are different experiences and to like put bring women back into the conversation and like as a part of the group. <laughs> Um, you know, and including, you know, women in your own church, which unfortunately sometimes that's common thing in churches is you kind of like just forget about the women or you're not asking what are they doing or what would they like to do? It's the opposite posture of let's make sure they don't do things that we they don't want. We don't want them to do. <laughs> mm. um, and so, yeah, I think just having more diverse, hearing more diverse stories, having different influences in your life, making yourself aware of what do other people think about other than like me and my favorite three dude theologian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. All right. Last kind of fun couple of questions here. Yeah. Who is the most overrated Puritan in your mind, man or woman? Ooh. I'm assuming it's going to be a man because they're the ones that we all tend to okay. talk about. And who is the most <laughs> underrated Puritan? Oh, man. Overrated? I feel like everyone doesn't like them enough for everybody <laughs> to be But you know what? John Owen is overrated in, like, a weird way. Like, I feel like sometimes people only go to Owen for stuff about covenant theology, like, things that he's famous for, and I wish that there would be more research on books that he's written in arguments and stuff that is just like never talked about. And then if someone had all of a sudden, if they read all the popular books about Owen and then read Owen, they'd be like, oh, this guy's actually a little bit different than what mm. I thought he was. I don't know if that's actually overrated or not. <laughs> Maybe the like ideal of John Owen is overrated. <laughs> um, and underrated? Oh, man. I mean, I don't want to be a broken record, but I really think Lucy Hutchinson is so cool. And everyone would be better if they read Lucy <laughs> And what's the what's the name of that 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 book that she wrote? Is that the kind of what she's most famous for? No, that's definitely not what she was most famous for. That's kind of like her most neglected book. It's called Principles of the Christian Religion. And so yeah, there's like an old reprint version you can look at online, and then there's like the expensive but beautiful and amazing Oxford University Press <laughs> version of her theological writings. And then there's my book, which you could get little tidbits of. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jenny Lynn, for talking to us today, helping us to yeah. get a little more insight into the Puritans in general, but Puritan women in particular and their important stories for us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Matt. That was Jenny Lynn DeClerc on Puritan Women. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, Five Puritan Women, Portraits of Faith and Love. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off, 
or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org/plus. That's crossway.org/plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.